we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. Welcome back, dear listener. We're up to episode 98 of the Iron Fist and Velvet Club. It's the 31st of May 2017. With me, a special guest, the return of right-wing Tony. Tony, welcome back to the program. Glad to be back, <laughs> Mr. Fist. <laughs> Good to have you here, Tony. And, um, well, with right-wing Tony on board, I think we need to d- discuss some topics where a right-wing view um, might be informative. And Tony, we're going to be talking today a lot about Islam, I think. And uh, the Manchester bombing occurred just before the previous podcast, so we didn't get a chance to talk about it much. But uh, we're going to make up for that uh, in this episode, and we'll talk about that and Islam and what the hell's happening. And to sort of uh, kick things off, dear listener, just to sort of set the scene for what we're trying to achieve, I'm going to play a little bit of a grab from... Jonathan Pye, who has a very interesting Facebook page, Tony, and he he does this thing where he pretends to be this reporter just reporting around London, and in between official takes, he sort of talks to his mate on camera about things that are going on. Uh, word of warning, dear listener, language warning for this episode, um, Jonathan's language... Uh, is colourful, and I think Tony and I... Descriptive, probably, but colourful, yeah. <laughs> and I suspect that Tony and I might get a bit colourful in this episode, so if there's any kiddies around, perhaps not the episode to have on loudspeaker, but um, the occasional F-word's probably going to be dropped in this episode. So anyway, here's Jonathan Pye. The problem is this time, carrying on as normal, it just, it feels like apathy. It doesn't achieve anything. You, you have the choice of either carrying on as normal or what? Slam poetry. What, what I'm supposed to do is shut up, write something heartfelt on my Facebook page about solidarity and coming together, give out free hugs in the Arndale Centre. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of minute silences. I, do, I don't want to be silent. I want to fucking scream. But apparently, if I get angry, they've won. Because apparently we have one weapon the terrorists don't have. And that's love. We can fight them with that. That and tea lights. Lots of tea lights. Apparently, I get it, but I'm just not feeling the love right now. I'm feeling nothing but hate right now for a man who thinks blowing up children will get him a free pass into paradise. Who told him that? Where did he get that idea from? That's what I want to know. This man, this man doesn't represent the Muslim community. Of course he doesn't. But isn't it time to stop pretending that this has nothing to do with religion? After, after the Westminster attacks, right, some archbishop came out and said, we may never know why he did this. Check his WhatsApp. He says he's waging jihad. Why can't we talk about that? Why, why pretend this isn't about ideology? Look at the target. Young teenage girls enjoying themselves, dancing to pop music. They were targeted for a reason, based on a twisted version of a religious ideology. If you pretend it isn't, it doesn't just go away. We've got to have a conversation. We've got to stop this idea that there are certain topics that we just don't talk about. Sensitive issues need more discussion, not less. Well, it's just straight out of the right-wing Tony playbook, perhaps. I can't fault him. <laughs> He's exactly right. We've been cowed by politically correct, craven politicians and left-wing progressives, allegedly, into saying nothing about things. And the, the moment someone discusses it and uses the word Islam in connection with it, you're a racist, you're a bigot, and you shout it down. And it has to be addressed mm. because it's not going to cure itself. Mm. Dear listener, I couldn't help myself. I entered uh, angry old man status this week, um, wrote a letter to the editor of the Courier-Mail and managed to get it published, uh, which appeared in today's Courier-Mail. But it was in response to an article by uh, Dr. Karen Brooks, who wrote an article in the Courier-Mail on Monday. And the theme of her article, I'll just read the last paragraph. Standing together like Manchester in the face of hate, defeats mindless violence and also the toxic aftermath 
of self-inflicted destructive social and cultural division. In a sense, well, in essence, she was saying, you know, unity is everything. We must maintain our unity. If we become divided in any sense, uh, the terrorists win. And in maintaining that unity, it was not appropriate to be going around criticising any person or group. And I couldn't help myself. I wrote a letter saying, for goodness sake, we've got to criticise bad ideas. It's, it's fake unity. If you're refusing to address these issues, you are, um, you're just papering over a fake unity. We have to discuss the conflict of ideas and nut them out. Um, we just can't sweep them under the carpet. I agree. But I think... The big discussion is whether Islam is actually compatible with a secular society. And I think there are a number of people who've written about this, and the view I've come to is that it's totally incompatible. And I'm happy to sort of later in this discussion refer to various people who've written on this, that fellow that you played a moment ago who said, where did this fellow get that idea from? Well, it's he knows exactly where it came from. That lady who was hounded out of Australia before she even got here, Ian Hirthi Ali, in her book Heretic, she basically answers his question. For Islamists, it, this life doesn't count at all. It's irrelevant. It's the next life that matters. And she referred to a martyr for Allah as being a a shahid. And the gift they receive for the atrocities they commit is that all sins are forgiven. They're married to 70 dark-eyed virgins and they become a heavenly advocate for 70 members of their family going forward. So they have a fatalistic worldview. Mm. There's nothing really attractive about this world other than the, the path it offers to the next. Tony, there, we, in this community, we still can't get past this argument. Like, there are people who are maintaining that this has nothing to do with Islam. Despite... It has everything to do with Islam, and that's all it has anything to do with. <laughs> it's got something to do with Islam. No, I believe it has everything to do I, I, with Islam. I agree. Here's another grab. Now, this one, uh, dear listener, uh, was from a Sunrise uh, interview the other day with uh, the guy called the Fake Sheikh, or that's what he's called by the left, uh, a guy called Tawhidi, and uh, with another guy called Riffy. So I'll, uh, I'll play... Actually, have I got their full names on this? No, I don't. But I'll play a little bit of this grab for you. And uh, for someone to come and say these Islamic scriptures have nothing to do with it, I mean, that's uh, against the facts. That's not true. The Islamic scriptures is exactly what is pushing these people to behead the infidel. Let me tell you something. The people that are beheading, that Mr. Uh, the, the person that killed the young girls in Manchester did so believing he was going to dine with the Prophet Muhammad that very night. That's and that is true. because the Islamic that, scriptures... That's not true. Okay, there is Jamal. nothing... I never lied in my life. I've always said what I believe in, and what I believe in is the truth. Now, these, uh, you, you know, these suicide bombers that what we saw in Manchester, Manchester, everyone would know in the Muslim community that he is not going into heaven, he's going to hell. He just killed wow. innocent people, let an old children. It is a horrific act. We condemn it. We are against it. And there is nothing in our religion will support killing of innocent people. Full so that's Dr. Jamal Rifi saying there's nothing in Islam that supports killing people. I'd like to write out a script for that good doctor, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, Imam Sheikh Muhammad Tawhidi was the guy saying, of course, it's got everything to do with Islam. But this is on the Sunrise program. This guy, Dr. Jamal Rifi, he's been on various ABC programs, Tony, Mm, Um, mm. a well-recognised leader in the Muslim community, very well-recognised, seen as a moderate, yet refusing to acknowledge that any of the scripture of Islam has got anything to do with what's going on. Well, he must have bought an abbreviated version (laughs) of the book because everybody else that seems to top themselves and, and create mayhem all around the planet um, are referring to scriptural texts. Mm. It's um, 
if we look at some analogies, uh, IRA terrorists, Tony, mm. were they Catholic? They indeed were. Mm. And Protestants mm. on the other side. Mm. So to say that Islamic State isn't Islamic is like saying Opus Dei isn't Catholic or ultra-Orthodox Jews aren't Jewish. Like They, they clearly have a... Really, if you, if you read it correctly, they are more Islamic than than the so-called Muslim, moderate Muslims because they're taking the text and applying literally. it literally. Yes, but it's not a. It's not. They a, regard, I think, moderate Muslims as verging on apostasy. Yes, and that's why moderate Muslims are cowed into saying nothing. And you find often. Politicians and other people are saying, well, we want moderate Muslims to speak out about this. But I think your average moderate Muslim would be terrified about saying anything. Mm. So when we say they've taken a literal interpretation, it's not like they've um, they've taken a difficult interpretation. They've, they've looked at the ordinary meaning of the words in the scripture and simply mm. applied them. Yeah, um, I- yeah it, it was written... It appears in medieval times and it carries forward unamended, unabridged to now. Mm. And these people refer to people in the West as crusaders. Like, I've only ever seen a painting of a crusader, but I haven't stumbled across a crusader anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) But they speak that way. It's part of the text. Mm. Okay, we've got a few articles to sort of um, highlight here. One of, have you ever heard of Douglas Murray? Have you seen any of his stuff? No. He speaks, he speaks very well. And um, he's written a book, uh, The Strange Death of uh, Liberal... The Strange Death of Europe is the title. And this article is The Strange Death of Liberal Europe. Um, he writes and speaks very well. And uh, he's argued that Europe is in its death throes. And he says, first, there are too many migrants. Secondly, they're coming at a time when Europe has lost sight of what it is. And I think that second part is important because he emphasises that a nation that assimilates its immigrants will have an integrated community. A nation that does not assimilate its immigrants will have parallel communities. Assimilation requires effort and determination from the host nation and the immigrant and, and he's saying that today Europe has been too embarrassed to, to promote its own ethos, if you like, and hasn't been strong enough to say, uh, we've got a good society here and we require people coming in to, to fit in and assimilate into this society. And really accusing uh, Europe of a moral cowardice in terms of maintaining its own ethos the the contrary position to this tony is uh in america like they haven't had as many terrorist attacks in america given the size of the country and population and one of the all the theory is i like this theory anyway is that america is so big on selling the story of American exceptionalism and we are Americans first, we are the greatest nation of earth, if you're here you are American first and you're Muslim second and they're unabashed in that and I reckon they've sold that story to to their immigrants and convinced them to a large extent that you're American first, this is your home don't shit in it don't start blowing people up because this is a great place, whereas Europeans have been too reticent to say this is a great place, don't muck it up. So there's a theory as to the difference in what's happened between Europe and America, which I think is a valid yeah, it, it, it It sort of makes sense, but I think you have to look at the immigrants that the US has attracted. Hmm. And I'm not certain that they've attracted perhaps similar proportionate numbers of Muslim immigrants to those that have now surged into Europe. And assimilation is the key to a liberal society expanding and and offering the benefits of a liberal society. But my problem is that from what I've read, 
I ha- I've come to the conclusion that I don't think the assimilation is possible. The French have actually come up with a word for what's going on in France, and it's the spelling is I N T E G R I S M E, and the pronunciation is Antegrisma. And basically, what that means is a refusal to assimilate. Mm. So I think the problem that is there in Europe is that whilst they've had lots of immigrants and cross-migration going on, there's a, a hardcore group of immigrants that have come from the colonial traditions of some of the European countries. And the British have had people from, you know, the the Indian continent and Pakistan and the French have had people come from the former African colonies and they're the groups that aren't assimilating and I think the US experience and I haven't done any reading on it or, or looked at any data but it would surprise me if the numbers proportionately that are going to the US are similar to the numbers that are turning up in continental Europe. And well, it would be nothing like the 10% that's in some European countries correct, now. Yeah. Correct, correct. Mm. And so it may be easier for people to assimilate and harder for them to refuse to assimilate mm-hmm. in the US. And that sort of was the situation here too. But where we seem to be tracking now is that we are happy to allow this parallel development occur and that is a real danger to our society where we will have enclaves and almost a cradle-to-grave experience where people can emigrate, not learn the language, go to Islamic schools, Islamic mosques, and work in an Islamic community that's totally cut off from the rest of the country. Mm. If people don't think that's happening in Australia right now, yeah, it is. I draw your attention to another article, dear listener. This one uh, titled, Proposed Islamic Hub Draws Cross-Chamber Accusations Among Brisbane Councillors. And what we've got happening in Brisbane at the moment, um, the Australian International Islamic College at Durack has submitted a development application to Brisbane City Council and proposed a childcare centre, mosque, multi-storey residential building, shops, medical centre and aged care facility to be built on the school site at Blunder Road. So that's the sort of enclave that we're talking about which allows people to live parallel societies. And as we will talk about in this episode, is a really, really bad idea. Um, yeah. Just before we leave that um, that development, as this was being discussed in council, uh, Councillor Griffiths was asking Councillor Quirk about it, and Griffiths was saying to Quirk, you know, will you bring this application to council for debate? And Councillor Quirk, who I hadn't had anything against up until now, responded by saying... He didn't know what uh, didn't know what Councillor Griffiths was pursuing with his multiple questions on the same topic, and said he hoped there were no racial tones to his question. I certainly hope it doesn't have racist overtones. I would hope not, Councillor Quirk said. Um, uh, I'm not going to be drawn today by Councillor Griffiths' smartly and politically motivated attempts at racism in this chamber. Well, Quirky's missing the point altogether. It's got nothing to do with race. Hmm. Race has got nothing to do with this. This is a belief system. You can be of any ethnicity Mm. and adopt this belief system. And in fact, some Western people have adopted it. And there are other people who are becoming co-religionists in jail, where there are in some New South Wales jails, it seems, the maximum security jails, uh, they're hotbeds for proselytisation. And so... Quirky's missed the point. It's not about race. It's not. But even if it was, well, it's it's a shutting down of debate. It's, you know, you've got to have some balls now to talk about. To, like a, a development which is clearly, well, clearly arguable that it's 
a bad idea. Mm-hmm. And a councillor wants to get up in chambers and, and talk about it. And and the sly allegation of racism mm-hmm. is just popped up to shut down debate. Correct, correct. And they hide behind their saying they have to look at it only in relation to town planning principles mm. and whether or not in a strict town planning sense uh, this makes good town planning sense. But I think the duty and obligations of all governments at whatever level is to move in a direction that that promotes a harmonious society, um, putting town planning considerations to one side because that has to be the driver. That's why we elect representatives to make good, valid decisions that are in the best interests of its all as a community. Mm. So we've been saying that, uh, well, I've been saying that Europe has sort of um, wasn't awake to the fact that um, the need to assimilate is important. But in recent times, it seems that a few European leaders have started to catch on to the problem here. So Angela Merkel, 2010, said, of course, the approach to build a multicultural society and to live side by side and enjoy each other has failed, utterly failed. That's Angela Merkel. Uh, David Cameron, in a speech, 2011, uh, uh, critical of the doctrine of state multiculturalism by which we have encouraged different cultures to live separate lives. And a few days later, uh, French president at the time, Nicolas Sarkozy, pronounced multiculturalism to be a failure. So these European leaders have started to recognise... Yeah, but those dates you've referred to are Mm. going on for seven years Mm. ago. Their words, if you look at their deeds subsequent to that, Merkel Mm. opened the floodgates Mm. in Germany, and I think in one year, something Mm. like a million Mm. happy campers turned up. Uh, and at the end of that year, a whole heap of girls were raped and groped in Cologne and the police wouldn't even discuss it mm. because they didn't want to use the I word because um, it seemed as though the perpetrators came from one particular group in their society. Mm. And Merkel uh, ran a campaign against Mar- Marine Le Pen. Uh, you, We now have a new French president that's... Um, a liberal, and I don't think he's going to take any real steps. I actually think Europe's lost. I think Europe, the demographers are saying that it's only a matter of time before, um, as Gaddafi, the late esteemed mama, said once that we won't have to invade Europe, we'll just move in and have a lot of children, and that's exactly what they're doing. Mm. Seculars and Christians are barely replacing themselves, and... Um, you're getting seven or eight to a family. Mm. Mm. Have you read any Kenan Malik yet? I don't think I have. Right. Unless you've said it to me. And no, I'm, I'm going no. to have to give you some Kenan Malik. He's yeah. very, very good. Mm. So um, he's uh, British of Pakistani descent and um, uh, grew up as a young man, you know, entering his late teens, early 20s in, in the 70s. And he makes the distinction that at that time racism was rife, like packy bashing was happening all the time and they were discriminated against and they had certainly lots of legitimate grievances. And what they did, though, at that time was they took political action. So uh, the sorts of things they did was join the Indian Workers Association and the Asian youth movements, but... These were political movements aimed at increasing the um, uh, the rights of of a whole any number of disadvantaged groups. They weren't ethnic specific, and uh, in his book um, about Salman Rushdie, he made the point that after the Rushdie affair, that's when things changed and. Uh, Governments started giving money to ethnic groups and to leaders of ethnic groups, and suddenly, if you claimed an ethnicity, you claimed rights, privileges, money, government grants based on that ethnicity. And prior to that time, people of of his group didn't identify so much as as Muslims as they did as just black. 
um, and that was a significant change that that took place. And it's part of the of of what's happened here. It's this emphasis on your ethnicity as a Muslim that's um, caused the problem. Prior to the Rushdie affair, prior to the multicultural policies where people were treated differently based on their ethnicity, a rebellious, disenfranchised Pakistani youth would join a workers' movement and would would rally and work for all blacks, for example, uh, rather than an ethnic group. And, and identity politics brought about through multicultural policies has has reduced people down to an ethnic group and it's that emphasis on on your identity as a small group that has created further division in our society. Yeah, I, I think there's a duty of a welcoming state to, if, if we're prepared to accept refugees, and, and I have no problem with that, and I think it's it's the right and proper thing to do, but... It is the duty of a welcoming state if you're if you're going to put yourself out there and welcome people in who've suffered where they've come from that they need to be helped on their way. What needs to be done though is it needs to be done in a way that doesn't promote enclaves or or people setting up completely separately. And I accept that if you're a Sudanese person of whatever religion, it, when you come here, you're going to seek Sudanese friends. And I know from my primary school, I went to a primary school that predominantly the children were of Italian extraction. And there was a lot of harmony within that group and the parents sought each other out for, for comfort and support. But they were prepared to look beyond that cultural grouping and they were prepared to assimilate. And I know some of my best friends still are friends from primary school and their parents actively encouraged them to engage, not disengage, but engage. And they would work multiple jobs, these parents, um, in order to provide their children with the best opportunities in this country. Mm. Where I think things go off the rail is, a, is that the governments and the advisors to them seem to sort of be focused on this cultural relativism and lauding that as, as being an appropriate thing. And the balance is out of whack. And so we now have a situation where, as we were discussing before, the city council's discussing whether or not you can effectively have a cradle-to-grave society at Jurek where someone could effectively be born there and die there and perhaps never come out. Mm. And from what I've read about Islam, that fits perfectly because they see us as infidels and they're not interested in, in our rules or... And in fact, um, they believe if a law isn't in harmony with Islamic law, Sharia, then it's an illegitimate law. Now, that's in complete distinction and contrast to Jewish people mm. and Christians, because the Jews said the law of the land is the law of the land, and Christ allegedly said, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. But these guys are on a different page altogether, and they will actively seek Sharia law because if you don't observe Sharia, then you're not a good Muslim. Mm, mm. And I think that's sort of the duty of the state, if you're welcoming people, is to, to look after them. But I think the duty of the state also is to be a little selective. If the experience over a number of decades is that some of the people you're welcoming don't really want to assimilate ever mm. and participate then they should not be welcome. Mm. And I'm agreeing with a lot of commentators as saying enough's enough. We need to deal with the problem we've got rather than exacerbating it by inviting some more in. Because the risk is we're only just 
putting another log on the fire mm. at the end of the day. Mm. Because I don't think their own community is self-regulating. It's clear from these atrocities that are committed. Some of these people are second-generation people. Well, you would have thought by the second generation they would have got over it, but it's not happening. In fact, it works the other way. And this is one of the infuriating arguments, Tony, is when, when um, Donald Trump was having his Muslim ban and people said, well... Terrorism acts aren't actually committed by refugees. Um, Failed to point out that they're caused, unfortunately, very often by the sons and daughters of refugees. Mm. And that, that part was completely ignored. And we've got a same situation happening with our own ASIO at the moment. So Pauline Hansen was questioning um, the ASIO boss, Duncan Lewis in some sort of uh, Senate question uh, forum and uh, asking about Muslim involvement in, in terrorism. And Mr Lewis said, I have absolutely no evidence to suggest there's a connection between refugees and terrorism. Well, in that point, he's correct. It's the, it's the nature of the refugee that's the connector. We've got a lot of refugees coming here. We've got people from all around the planet that are turning up here and creating no difficulties at all. So I think that statement, if he stopped there and didn't elaborate, is fine. But it's who we are letting in that's causing the problem. Good point, actually. I hadn't... Well, you think about it. Like, I mean... There aren't groups of Mormons on bikes with backpacks and in, in pressure cookers in their backpacks going around, and they obviously hold strong religious convictions, some of which seem quite unusual when you have time to read them. There are no Lutheran hit teams on the streets taking out institutions. There's only one group on the planet that seem to be disaffected. Mm. Just harking back to our Asia boss, though, mm. I'm not going to let him off the hook. Hang on. <laughs> Because Hanson oh, was a bit forgiving. No, Hanson <laughs> was a bit more specific. Actually, yeah. she she began the late night Senate estimates hearing exchange by asking the ASIO chief whether all the perpetrators of four terrorist attacks and twelve thwarted attacks in Australia since two thousand and fourteen were Muslim, uh, not just refugees. And he responded that one of the twelve foiled attacks involved a right wing extremist. So the answer is no. Well, they have not all been yeah, carried out by Muslims. He obviously needs to read more widely because the Australian last weekend named the terrorist attacks Man Haron Morris, Abdul Naiman Haider, Fahad Jabbar. They all conducted attacks of some sort. Ishas Khan was charged with committing a terrorist act. Those guilty of terror-related offences were Hamdi Al-Qudisi, Amin Iman Muhammad. Ali Al-Tabali, Fatima Alamar, Hassan Al-Sabasi, Mohammed Kiad, Omar Al-Kabuti, Seved Besam, Braban Alu, and I could go on. I don't, the, I don't think they're. I don't think they're of the Mormon faith. No, or, or, no, there's or Quakers. No, no Lutherans in there, Quakers <laughs> or Shakers. No, and for him to say one person was a right-wing extremist, truly. This is, this is the disinformation that we're being pushed to move away from even considering the real cause of the problems in our society. Another quote from the ASIO boss. <laughs> but I've got to stress, Senator, this is very important. ASIO does not make its inquiries or its assessments on the basis of somebody's religion. Mm. So apparently ASIO are investigating Mormons as much as they are... The Muslim community. Well, there's a wasted resource, isn't there? Yeah. Anyway, unless you're a polygamist. But mind you, if they found a polygamist Mormon, they'd probably prosecute him for bigamy. But in the western suburbs of Sydney, there's a number of bearded gentlemen who've got plenty of wives and all of whom seem to be receiving social security. And to my knowledge, no one's been prosecuted for bigamy here. The ASIO boss has some support, Tony. Oh, I don't doubt it. But Walid Ali. <laughs> Counter-terrorism experts have overwhelmingly backed him. Yep. Um, <laughs> before we go on to their backing, as you say, the Lint uh, Cafe perpetrator, Man Wanners, a Muslim, um, 
teenage terrorist Abdul Newman Haider. He was the guy who shot yeah, uh, police officers. Um, sorry, he was shot dead after stabbing two police officers. Um, in Melbourne. And then we've got uh, Farhad Jabbar was uh, the one who killed Curtis Chang in yeah. Parramatta. So um, so those are the facts of, of the major terrorist incidents in Australia. And we've got the ASIO chief saying that. And we've got... Well, there'd be a hell of a lot more, obviously. He's, he's, he's waxed lyrical about the fact that they've been able to thwart a number of attacks, but he hasn't yes. gone on to say who the perps were well, and who were the people well, that they shook down and took down. Well, and one of them was a right-wing extremist. <laughs> so, no, they weren't all Muslim. Well, that man was obviously lost, wasn't he? <laughs> Greg Barton, Deakin University, agreed with the ASIO chief. Uh, he said... Comparisons to the bombing in Manchester, where there are specific problems involving the families of refugees who fled Libya, were not appropriate. That's not a dynamic we find in Melbourne and Sydney, he said. It's only a matter of time. Correct. Correct. Clark Jones, director of the Australian Intervention Support Hub at the Australian National University, uh, said, If ASIO don't know... Nobody knows, he said. We've got to have faith in what Duncan Lewis, ASIO chief, is saying. If they don't believe research and they don't believe ASIO, who are they going to believe? Well, I'm going to look at the facts. If I look up in the sky and it's blue and the ASIO chief tells me it's green, Mm. I'm I'm not having faith in the ASIO chief. No, but they are practicing disinformation like there's a whole there's a whole agenda of driving people away from considering even the problems and that that grab you started this yes topic on tonight um jonathan pye correct he basically said we've got to address this we've got to deal with it it's 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 true they are the facts like i i was reading an article on the weekend where you you get these people who are promoted and they speak widely on topics like following the Boston Marathon attack, Walid Ali, who was then described as a Monash University academic, in his Fairfax Media column, said that terrorism is a grotesque form of theatre, a perpetual irritant. It's not any kind of existential threat and with which we all have to live. It's just an irritant. Uh, the London Mayor, Sadiq Khan, when he went to New York in September last year, said, terror attacks are part and parcel of living in a big city. It's, it's a, a denial of what's going on. And we need to at least have the courage to talk about it and talk about it frankly and then work out how we're going to deal with it mm. and whether we have to take some radical steps like shutting down Muslim schools and if that means we have to shut down Catholic and Anglican schools or whatever because yeah. it would be discriminatory not to do so, then we have to consider all of that because the duty of the state is to protect its citizens. It's not to provide funding, Gonski or otherwise, for promoting terrorists where they can sit in their own schools their own mosques we've got no idea what's being discussed in fact i read some article that said in mosque now they don't discuss the dirty business they do that outside because they know that what mosques might be wired for sound Mm. by asio yeah can't get into a school now you're talking right wing tony now you're talking (laughs) i'm starting to despair (laughs) that that our governments are not addressing the problem and Clearly, if you were to say shut the Muslim schools, you'd be discriminating. You'd be deaf yes. by the roars from the left intelligentsia yes. or whatever. Perhaps that's the silver and cloud on. Yeah, on, comrade, on silver comrade lining. short on would be an apoplectics and whatever. This is the silver lining on this cloud, Tony. Is well, that, it might is that, be. Is that the need to shut down Islamic faith schools mm. may well cause the shutting down mm. of of the other faith schools. One can only hope. Well, that might be a solution to your problem, yeah. <laughs> before we before we just leave this ASIO chief, because this really gets me, have you been watching uh, about the Lint Cafe mm. botch, mm. botch job? Mm. 
the incompetence shown there. Mm. I mean, if you were one of the families involved, you would be apoplectic with rage mm. at the incompetence. So when people suggest trust ASIO, they know what they're doing, I don't trust mm. them at all. And no. it's not good enough to say these guys are the experts, let them do their job. Yeah, but the police who are actually the ones that had to put their lives on the line and go in, they kept asking for clearance to go in, it seems, from what I saw the yeah. other night on a review of all of this, and their commanders were telling them that they couldn't go in. So mm. there's this reluctance yet again to to do anything that might be perceived as Islamophobic or something like that. Like the solution really is in terror situations that the police recruit outstanding marksmen and markswomen that are capable of dispatching a terrorist. And there ought to be no confusion about it. If the circumstances are appropriate, they extinguish the problem mm. and hopefully the hostages get out safely. Mm. But we shouldn't be constrained to be worried about how this is going to run in Parramatta or Western Sydney if one of these fellows loses the front of his head because mm. there's mm. nothing in his head anyway. Mm. It was a frightening uh, expose of incompetence all around, even mm. the frontline SWAT team or whatever they were, oh, throwing, one, throwing one group, flash yeah. bombs into the yeah. foyer with the door closed. It, it was just yeah. terrible. But the other group got in. Yeah. And the other group... And did the job. And did the job. Yeah. It's just a little late, unfortunately. But... Mm. Those men and women in that group that had to go in are the ones that put their lives on the line that night. Mm. And they're the ones who will probably, for the rest of their lives, wear that mm. because they wanted to go in earlier and they wanted to finish this thing and they're overruled. And I, I don't think the fellow sitting back, well back from it, will suffer as much as they will. Mm. Mm. Tony, just before leaving this article, which is the one about the ASIO chief and all the people who are backing uh, his claim that it's got nothing to do with refugees, mm. um, uh, let me just see here. Anne Alley, a radicalisation expert and now a Labor MP. Radicalisation expert in her own mind. Yeah. Said it was a really long bow to directly link refugee status with terrorism because of the tiny number of examples available as evidence. In each case, quote, they didn't come in as radicalised individuals, they became radicalised here, she noted. It's a... It's a strange... Well, again, she uses the refugee word, and you see, that's dissembling the facts as well. The word, if she wanted to defend it, should be the I word, not the R word, because we have a hell of a lot of refugees that come here that don't cause any trouble. Mm -hmm. It's a strange sort of chicken and egg story going on here. I mean, imagine if eggs were suddenly nuclear bombs... You know, we'd be saying, well, where's all the chickens? First would be our first question, wouldn't it? Mm. <laughs> but yeah. we're, not, no. we're not allowed to say that in this case. You've no. got to ignore that fact. No. And, and We've got to allow them to be free-range chooks by the sounds <laughs> of it. But, Tony, uh, here, here is one of the things. This is the phenomenon that happens, is that you can have a moderate Muslim family who are doing all the right things um, and their children grow up to be a terrorist of some sort, despite the parents being quite moderate and being appalled at the prospect of a terrorist child. And, dear listener, if you're wondering how that can happen, you've got this enclave situation that we've been talking about. And if you read no other article... This is my favourite article out of 98 episodes, Tony. We did it in episode 25, the Christmas edition titled Moderate Muslims Have Hit Their Wall. And it's by an ex-Muslim in the USA telling her story. And um, she... I'll paraphrase different bits from this article. How do you tell a radical homicidal Muslim from a moderate peace-loving one? And she says, um, you can't tell. 
They're like a dormant stick of dynamite waiting for the fuse to be lit. The TNT is already in there. And what is it made of? It's made uh, in every act that is performed that excludes us from the mainstream. It is present in the very concept of us and them. Uh, the only way to be an exemplary us is to reject westernisation at every turn. Uh, what she says is, um, I was raised in a Muslim country in the Middle East and religion was something we kept in its place somewhere after school, soccer and cartoons. Here, and she's talking about in the Midwest, was a more distilled, pure and most dangerous, a context-free Islam. There were no grandmothers here to sagely tell us which parts of the Quran to turn a blind eye to. There were no older cousins here who skipped Friday prayers and goofed off with their friends instead. Oh no, this was Islam, simmered in a source of Midwestern sincerity and boiled down to its dark, concentrated core. This was dangerous. She goes on to say how she had her own children. The father insisted that they go to a Muslim school. Uh, she says here, I knew it would change. A sincerity would creep into their gaze. Teenage rebellion would find just cause in judging your less religious parents as wanting and inferior. Bad Muslims. How many teenagers have started to wear hijab before their own mothers? I've lost count. Mothers who found themselves in this dilemma would choose to join their children on this journey. They would cover up too and, as such, offered a layer of protection from the ideology by offering perspective. So what we've got is, is these kids who become more extreme than their parents because they are told in school and in their community to identify as Muslims and to be a good Muslim, you have to be as pious as possible. Well, and it's all about the next life, as, yeah, yeah. as we were discussing before. Mm. Um, it's, it's, I think the reality is it's got very little to do with this life. You, you mm. have to live piously, but the main game is the next life, and that's why um, suicide atrocities are, are so um, attractive. Uh, I read a book that I told you about, Trevor, called Islamic Exceptionalism, and it's written by a guy called Shadi Hamid, who is a Muslim. He's also a senior fellow in the project on US relations with the Islamic world at the Brookings Institute, and he's a contributing writer for The Atlantic, and he's written a number of books, but this particular book is Islamic Exceptionalism, and it the, the title is the key to the whole thing. Basically, what he's saying is that Islam is different. They're exceptional. And the fact that they're exceptional, he says, is neither good nor bad. It just is. And we need to understand it. So we in the West need to understand it and respect it, even if it runs counter to our own hopes and preferences. And in terms of some people bang on about, oh, well, just like Christianity, there may be a reformation or there may be with enlightenment um, an appreciation of the secular state and secularization, which has occurred in the other religions, he basically comes to the conclusion, he says, my argument here is not that such an outcome is impossible, but rather that it is improbable and extremely unlikely in the near to medium term. So he's saying similar things to the lady you've just read mm. from. It It's different, and it's got to be different, because that's what the texts tell it to be. Mm. So there isn't going to be a meeting of minds. There's never going to be a crossing of the bridge. They're exceptional. They require to be treated exceptionally. They want particular hours of bathing at public pools and the mm. pools to be shut mm. so that no one else can come near them and we have councils here that are agreeing to those things and mm. we're pandering to their exceptionalism mm. and the problem for us is that the West and its development through that enlightenment period we we could see a differentiation with church and state. And the Christian tradition has no equivalent of Islamic law. There is no legal code associated with Christians. But with 
Islamic law, it's an accumulated corpus, he says, of law concerned with governance and the regulation of social and political affairs. So if our states across the secular world allow them and encourage them to have separate learning institutions where their children can be closeted away from the rest of the society, then you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out where it's going to track to Mm. because their faith tells them that they're exceptional and that we will bring them down if they assimilate with us. So that begs the question, why are you here? Why did you come here? Mm. Because that's the bit that confounds me. Mm. If we're crusaders, barbaric, whatever, Mm. what the hell are you doing here? Mm. And I think the West is finding out now what they're doing Mm. in the societies that they've moved to. Mm. But yeah, but as that previous article points out, even a moderate, well-meaning Muslim... Mm who just thinks, well, I'll, I'll, I'll run my own religion here and I'm not going to blow anybody up. But mm. when you segregate your family from the community... That's right. ..you can lose control of your own kids. Yeah, very easily. Mm. Well, we all know with bringing mm. up children that's mm. a difficult road to hoe. Mm. And teachers play an important role mm. in, in schools and... The education of children and children often le- listen to their coaches and their teachers more than they listen to their parents so again it's not rocket science to work out where this is going off the rails mm-hmm. one other issue in this uh islam debate tony that gets me is um well you wouldn't have seen it because it happened on q a yeah and, and i, I refused I, to watch it and yeah. I, I didn't see it either because i refused <laughs> to watch it now i yeah. i just I, I can't stand it anymore no. but, but lawrence krauss oh, well, yeah. well-known yeah. uh atheist the refrigerator man yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right well-known spokesman for you know atheism and came apparently said on there that you are more likely to be killed by a falling refrigerator than you are by a terrorist. So stop worrying. Not in Manchester last week. <laughs> this happens all the time where they say you are more likely to be killed by bee stings or a crocodile attack or, or mm. any number of, mm. of, of seemingly unlikely events. And, Tony, it totally ignores the millions of hours of manpower that our community is spending keeping us safe. Like, if we didn't have all these extraordinary procedures in place at airports, Hmm. there wouldn't be any aeroplanes, you know, crashing into buildings every day because there'd be no aeroplanes left. Like, the entire fleet would be grounded Hmm. if we weren't doing what we're doing. If we weren't X-raying stuff through the postal service, if we weren't... The things that are done... It's such a disingenuous argument that I can't believe educated people make it. No, well, they say, get on with your life. Nothing will change. We'll show them and love and all of this. But our life has changed irreparably. I saw a photograph this week in one of the papers where they they had photographs of, of armed policemen in Britain on the trains. And they said that from that point forward all trains would have armed police on them. So our society has changed. It's not a situation where they can fob you off and say nothing's changed. Everything's changed and it'll continue to change. I read this really good article in Quadrant, which you probably wouldn't read because it's extreme, right? (laughs) But in any event, it was written by this lady, Gabriel Lord, who's written some novels and she's quite a talented sort of person. And she interviewed an Iraqi girl's experience of growing up as a Muslim in Australia. Okay. And this young girl, this was in the edition of November 2016, and this young girl basically said, they were told Australians didn't like us. We were always taught that Islam is all about temptation and being tested to prove your faith is unshakable. Outsiders were to be kept away because they were only coming to test us or try to change us. So we shouldn't talk or engage with them. We're taught that Islam is righteous and people who aren't Muslim go to hell. And then she said, basically, at school, it was a tough thing. She was in a Muslim school. Um, Even non-Muslim teachers there had to wear the headscarf. And she said she couldn't imagine being employed somewhere and being told to wear a headscarf to respect a religion they didn't follow. 
It, it goes, it's quite frightening. It goes on. Girls weren't allowed to pray when they had their periods. We were allocated a classroom where girls had to sit during prayer times when they were menstruating. Same with Islamic studies. We couldn't touch our religious homework when we were menstruating because it's unholy to do so. Mm. This was humiliating to sit in class and act casually in front of your male teacher, fearing to touch your homework, knowing that he will always know when you have had your period. Art, you weren't allowed to draw humans because you were where assuming... Where was this? In Sydney. In Sydney. Yeah. Um, she wanted to learn music. Uh, her parents said no because it was un-Islamic so she told them she was doing information technology and the real problem for us the rest of this community is that we're not aware as taxpayers that we are funding an educational system that enforces a type of gender apartheid that it shames and humiliates girl students why are we supporting an educational enclave that in all kinds of ways seeks to maintain separation from mainstream Australia, denigrating the very society and values which have afforded them refuge, freedom from sectarian violence and unmatched economic opportunities? So, and she goes on to describe the unhappy life her sisters had because they were both taken to Iraq and forced into marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them when she was 12. Um, And she said that the West and people here aren't prepared to say anything about anything. They're scared that Muslims will find it offensive. But she said to this interviewer, but what about underage kids that this is happening to? Isn't that offensive? Their lives are ruined. Mm. Mm. So that's where our taxpayer dollars are going. Forget Gonski and all the rest of it and all the fights that are going on about that and trying to give people... Opportunities, well, opportunities are being denied and we're paying for it. Mm. It's a disgrace. And the left is in favour of this. Oh, and the feminists say nothing. Like, I mean, girls are genitally mutilated and on it goes. Actually, the feminists are saying something. Um, the fem- <laughs> the white are, men, probably. Well, the feminists are claiming that the Manchester attack uh, was um, toxic masculinity <laughs> and uh, it was a renegade self-reflexive sexuality that was threatening to establish heteropatriarchal order. Yeah, well, I go back to the fact that I can't find any Mormons with Mm. backpacks with pressure cookers in them or Lutheran hit squads. So, yeah, it's got nothing to do with masculinity other than this thing we're talking about. Mm. Oh, Tony. All right. Hey, um... I'm going to play a little uh, a little blurb here. Dear listener, not too long ago, you looked at your podcast app and saw that a new episode of the Iron Fist and Velvet Glove podcast was available to download. Did you silently think to yourself, wait, a new podcast? I like listening to those guys. If so, then you qualify as a potential donor to the podcast. Your donation will help cover some expenses... But more importantly, your donation tells the boys that they are on the right track and to keep up the good work. A dollar a show is all they ask. Go to their website at ironfistvelvetglove.com.au and click on the donations link. Yes, dear listener, go onto the website and be like Sean, Alex, Jason, Grant, John, Craig, Janelle and Al. Thank you very much, guys, for your continued support. Well, right-wing Tony, when you look at your podcast app and see that a new episode is up, do you silently think to yourself, great. Where's my wallet? (laughs) (laughs) My wife's got my purse. (laughs) So uh, thank you, guys. And actually, Tony, one of my favourite parts now is we've got a link on the website where people can leave some... Um, a voicemail message for us. Hate mail. Well, well, hate mail, love mail, whatever. Dear listener, if you haven't already, and most of you haven't, uh, go on and leave us a voicemail message. Uh, we've got some some good stuff. Uh, last week we had Landon Hardbottom, and uh, Landon's back again this week with uh, with his feedback. Cheryl, where's the girl who helps me with this? I'm. Trying to leave a message for that fist fellow and that velvet glove person. What, what do you mean she's on lunch? She needs lunch? Goodness me. I have to pay sick leave. I have to pay for annual leave. 
This is why we need corporate tax breaks in Australia. Right, right. He needs to change his name to Hard <laughs> That's That's land and hard bottom. Yeah. Uh, you agree with him on the tax breaks, by the way? What's your opinion on corporate tax breaks? For who? But for the corporations. You know, in this recent budget uh, where we're giving $64 billion to companies as a tax break, right wing Tony? Well, I'm all for lower taxes across the board, actually. Um, so, yeah, I don't have a problem with tax breaks at all. Right. It may actually produce... Uh, Labor governments don't produce anything other than a collective immiseration of people. Mm. They try to redistribute wealth, but the, the problem with that is that sooner or later you're going to run out of money. Mm. So if a tax break will create employment or create jobs, and I don't know, the jury's out on whether it will or it won't, Trevor, you're looking at me as though you know the answer and that it won't, but I'm not convinced that it won't. Um, most people who are in business want to make profits and more profits rather than, I'm happy with that, I'll leave it now and I'll walk away. Uh, all the clients I ever acted for who were in the property development arena, I used to be bemused because they'd make, I thought, a, a good profit on a transaction but they didn't leave the ring. They went straight back in again and put it all back in mm. for the next development and the next development and on and so it went. And I think if you were to read any stories about the people that have made good in this country, like there's the Lowy family mm. and the Pratts and people like that, they're ploughing it back in. They're not interested in leaving the table. Would, would they have stopped doing it if the tax rate... Would they have done anything different if the tax rate was lower? I mean, they they did what they did with the tax rate as it was, and they Correct. paid their tax. But, but so it wasn't like they left more. the country. No, but they might have done more. Well, I don't know. I, I truly don't mm, know. Mm. But I think you've got to encourage entrepreneurs rather than discourage them. And mm. as regards mm. the rest of us as taxpayers, yeah, we mm. should be paying less, mm. and then we could. Um, do better things in our lives. The problem is that we've, we've ordered $50 billion worth of submarines. We're going to have to pay for them somehow. Yeah, well, I just think we should have got a couple of nuclear weapons and forgot about the rest of it. <laughs> it's a, a nuclear weapon is a sound strategy if you want to avoid uh, regime change foisted on you by the United States of America. I mean, they're yeah. leaving North Korea alone. Mm. They leave Pakistan alone. Mm. Well, it's, and, and they leave it's, any country with a... If, if Gaddafi... Correct, secured peace. Yes. Yeah. Saddam Hussein would still be in power if he had a nuclear weapon. Correct, yeah. yeah. So we should possibly peace. get a couple. Yeah, well, yeah. I haven't got a problem with it. Like, okay. I mean, there's a number of people that I think we're going to have to deal with, and we talked about that last time. Mm. It's getting closer to us now. It's mm. in the Philippines. Mm. Do you have a problem listening to too many podcasts? No. Oh, well, here's a guy who does. This podcast dependency is really killing me. But anyway, this is the place, the shill song, It'll Cost You Church. Uh, they say I can get help here. Let me have a look at their courses. Uh, pray the gay away. No, uh, happy clappy chlamydia cure. No, not this month. Uh, double dipping dummy donations. Oh, no. Uh, well, here it is, podcast participation persecution plagued by unresolved questions about supernatural, critical thought keeping you awake at night, just want to switch off and follow, that's the ticket. <laughs> Thank you, what problem for... <laughs> that, that concludes our listener feedback session, Tony. It's, it was great. Yeah, it's good. So keep up the good work and we'd like to hear from some others. Look, it doesn't have to be um, hilarious. It could be insightful or it could be abusive. It could be anything. Just uh, communicate with us would be great. <sighs> Right, Tony, moving on around the world a little bit. Dear listener, Tony and I went on to speak for about another 40 minutes on topics such as Indonesia, the Philippines and Taiwan. We had a You Cannot Be Curious segment dealing with the Margaret Court brouhaha about her comments over gay marriage and various things and the demands to rename the stadium. And we also had a discussion about changes to the constitution demanded by the aboriginal community here's a small taste of part of what we said well in fact tony you you recall our conversation with uh river people mm. and you thought it would be quite difficult to obtain instructions, instructions yes. and in this situation you might think well let's get instructions from the stadium as to what it would like to, <laughs> would be, like called. to be called and yeah. apparently the stadium tweeted 
Because <laughs> the stadium yeah. has its own Twitter account. Oh, and what's it said? Oh, it's in favour of marriage equality. Right. But so it made no comment on its, on its yeah. name. Mm. I'm not, I think it's signed off as Margaret mm. Cordarina, so mm. still... Mm. So there, you thought getting instructions from an inanimate object would be mm. difficult, but in there the Twitterverse, it's, yeah. entirely, it's possible. entirely possible. So going back to the river person in the previous mm. episode, if, if there's a Twitter account, mm. it's possible to get instructions. Yeah, there you go. But I've digressed. <laughs> no, no, no. That's, I didn't know that, but I, it doesn't surprise me. Yeah. So the good news for our patrons through Patreon is that you can access a longer episode and details about that should hopefully arrive in your email box and you'll be able to access a private um, podcast feed address that you can uh, listen to that. So that's a nice way for us to thank you for your uh, support and anyone else there thinking about becoming a patron Please do, and we'll give you access to these, uh, well, an episode like this, which is a little bit longer, and a few other special projects that are being worked on. So, uh, for the moment, um, that's the end of episode 98, and we'll be back again next week. Bye. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf, on their phone, and uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode. And really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really, what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth more than that, less than that? Whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe You really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just, it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks.